Gresham College presents Employment and Unemployment by Professor Jagjit Chadha. Today we're going to think a little bit collectively about um, unemployment and employment um, in the last couple of decades and I'm going to think about a couple of events that have caused us substantially to rethink the process of employment and unemployment in a modern advanced economy. And those two events I want us to think about collectively are the introduction of a minimum wage in 1999. And uh, all of you in this room would um, have heard yesterday that the national living wage has been increased yesterday in the Chancellor's um, autumn statement. We might want to think what that's told us about labour markets, because there are a number of people who have made some very strong predictions about the impact of a, a minimum wage, many of which have been proved to be wrong, such as the way of economics. And we want to understand what that is telling us about deeper structural issues in the economy. Another thing we want to try and understand is how did labour markets in the UK respond to the large crisis or recession, perhaps many of us would argue we're still living through, that followed the financial crash in 2007-8. What kind of events happened in employment and unemployment that surprised us, that caused us to rethink what's going on in labour markets? Many people thought that a shock to output of that size. If you want to understand how large it was, I refer you to my previous lecture where I talked about recessions and their longevity, particularly the one that we're arguably still living through. A certain number of people made predictions about where unemployment would, ra- would, would, would rise to on the back of such a large shock. And what we'll see later on in the lecture that, that actually didn't happen quite like that. It happened in quite a different way. I'm not sure I've got all the answers, but I just want to sort of posit these as the way, in a sense, um, economic science progresses. We we have a a number of observations, or what we might call um, granular predictions, and then when events come along, we try to understand them through the lens of that prediction. And when that prediction turns out to be wrong, we have to rethink our models and understand why they happen in a particular way. But the model is still useful. It's a device for helping us think about what we'd expect to find, and then how we have to modify the model to try and understand what happened. So that's why I think it's a very helpful process, not to stop at the point where we say, oh, the model was wrong, let's stop doing this, let's go and play cricket instead. Um, There's a point at which we've got to say to ourselves, hang on, maybe this is telling us something interesting that in a way we have to modify our models. That's the way I want to think about economics and I want to think about um, unemployment and employment. Just before I go on, there seems to be some feedback. Am I imagining that? um, Is it coming through? So I don't know whether anyone can do anything about that. Um, maybe I'll just move the microphone this way. Um, as you know, these things get recorded, so feedback, uh, unlike concerts I go to, is not often liked in this environment, but uh, here we'll try and eliminate it. So I'm going to start and end almost with one person's day, William Beveridge. Um, recall that when I was growing up, we were certainly told about his identification of five giant evils in society. We'll remember them, people of my generation, squalor, ignorance, want, idleness and disease. And, of course, this identification of these evils in the Beveridge Report 1942, um, I think, led to the establishment of the system of social welfare that we largely still have in place today. And I think a moment's reflection will tell us that um, thinking about unemployment or what we might think of as underemployment, less than full employment, may well be the dominant or predominant cause of those evils as we look across society. So we can identify these outcomes... But the deeper causes, it seems to me, it may be a society or an economic structure or a set of institutions that don't deliver 
full employment to the point at which people would want. And that means hours and numbers of work, which we'll go into um, in a minute. And after this report, Beveridge himself wrote about the need for full employment in a free society. And he proposed a notional uh, unemployment target of 3%, uh, one which we're sadly not at today. We seem to have settled for some notion of around 5%, but it's not a formal target in any way, uh, such as an, we may have an inflation target. Uh, now, of course, he was writing during World War II, but it was clear that he was already thinking about the obligations of the government as we move to a peacetime economy. And I think at the back of his mind was an emphasis on creating the right conditions for people to find a satisfying life of work. And it's also at this moment, I think, worth rereading people like George Orwell. And I hope this, this is not too small. I shall read it out, even if it isn't. The transcript of this lecture will be available at the end. So let me read it out. George Orwell writes, um, in a book published in 1937, when you see the unemployment figures quoted at two millions, which it's not only now, it is fatally easy to take this as meaning that two million people are out of work and the rest of the population is comparatively comfortable. I admit that till recently I was in the habit of doing so myself. I used to calculate that if you put the registered unemployment at around two millions and threw in the destitute, I should say all the bold, bold markings are mine. I'm just trying to make some points here. And threw in the destitute and those who for one reason or other were not registered, you might take the number of underfed people in England for every one on the dole or thereabouts is underfed as being at the very most five millions. So he's kind of amplifying the observed unemployed and making a general point about poverty and wantonness, it seems to me. And then he goes on to say, this is an enormous underestimate because in the first place, the only people shown on unemployment figures are those actually drawing the dole. So that's the notion of welfare support that was available at the time. That is, in general, heads of families. Most households at this time had single uh, wage earners and, and generally men, and they were termed heads of families. Um, and unemployed man's dependents do not figure on the list unless they too are drawing a separate allowance. A labour exchange officer told me that to get at the real number of people living on, not drawing the dole, you have to multiply the official figures by something over three. This alone, he argues, brings the number of unemployed to around six millions. But in addition, there are a great number of people who are in work, but who, from a financial point of view, might equally be unemployed, because they are not drawing anything that can be described as a living wage. Remarkably resonant, seems to me. Uh, that's the brilliance of Orwell, I guess. Many things to learn from him still. Let me provide a little bit of data uh, about this period. Um, those of you, I don't know if you're fortunate or unfortunate enough to come to my lectures, I know I often like looking at data, so we'll have a quick look at this period. Here we're showing um, the red line, referring to an index on the right-hand side, of real earnings uh, for workers, with the index uh, based to 100 in 1919, uh, through to the uh, last year of peace, um, 1938-39. Uh, on the left-hand scale, we see the level of unemployment as measured as a percentage of the workforce by those drawing the doll. So we've got to remember that these numbers are mismeasured in some sense, so we shouldn't take them as necessarily part of the truth. We can see the unemployment problem emerged in a substantive way after 1929. You can see the level of um, unemployment going from something like 10% to over 20% uh, in this period. And this is the whole workforce, not a fraction of the workforce. So over 20% of people who were looking for a job found themselves having to draw the dole. And at the same time, you can see real earnings were rising 
um, in that period. Now, in fact, the reason real earnings were rising in that period is not because nominal wages were going up. Actually, the price level uh, was mostly falling over this period. So if the real wage is nominal wages over prices and the aggregate price level is falling, real wages are rising. And so you have what looks like a rather nice aggregate explanation for the increase in unemployment at this time. And we'll look at a chart in a minute to explain that. But if you start from some notion where the market is clearing and you have an increase in, in the real wage uh, above the market clearing level, you're going to find more people looking for work at that higher real wage than they might have otherwise uh, have, have wanted to offer their labour. And that would lead to a level of unemployment that we observe in the economy, so-called involuntary unemployment, because people want to work at that wage, but they can't find a job at that wage because the real wage is above that which firms are willing to pay. Now, I'm not saying that is the explanation of 1930s unemployment. Clearly, later on, with the work of Keynes, we had a separate idea that it wasn't about real wages being too high, it was about demand being too low. But I'm just suggesting to you the neoclassical view, and that led to a, a, a strong debate about the cause of unemployment at that time. But if you took a neoclassical model, you'd simply say, well, of course, it's obvious. Unemployment's high because the real wage is too high. That's what you'd kind of say. Okay? Um, and then what you see later on is um, unemployment starts to fall back to about 10%, and real earnings are essentially stable. So if you take that previous thing in your head where you said real wages are too high, then clearly, the if this is a neoclassical story, the demand for labour has shifted up at that real wage rate so that those people who were previously unemployed move out of the pool of unemployed into the employed pool and the unemployed fall. So you might have a story here of a shock up in the real wage leading to unemployment or involuntary unemployment and then later on an increase in firm demand for labours that means that at that given real wage employment can rise and unemployment can fall. And that's a kind of neoclassical story that I just want to have in the back of our minds as we move on. Now, what would a, a modern macroeconomist say uh, if you were lucky enough to meet one in a dark alley somewhere around Blackfriars on a Friday night outside a pub? If you asked him or her, what are the stylized facts about the labour market? What does it look like over the business cycle? We've had lectures where I've talked about what the business cycle is. So I'm going to force you to go and look at those lectures. I won't explain what it is today. But let's suppose what stylized facts, what observations do they have in their head when they think about the labour market? So I've set them out here as a set of bullet points. Uh, as I've said before, and I'll say again, there'll be a test at the end to make sure that you learn them as I go through them. Um, when we look at the labour market, we want to split the labour market into the quantity of people working times the number of hours every individual works. If we multiply the, the number of people employed by the average hours that they work, we get total hours. That's the way we want to think about the labour market as a first pass. And if we look at the variance of outputs, so how much it moves up or down in a typical business cycle swing, that gives it a certain variance. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it has a variance attached to it that we, we can measure over the very long run. And it looks like total hours, that's the number of people employed times the average hours that they work, has about the same variance of output. So when output goes up, total hours go up. When output falls, total hours go down. And what we need to understand is how that gets split between the numbers of people employed and the average hours that they work. Economists call this split the difference between the intensive and the extensive margin. Employment, that's the number, is the extensive margin. And 
in a, a lot of post-war data in advanced economies, that seems to have also a similar variance to hours. So we know that total hours has a similar variance to output, and we kind of think that employment has a similar variance to output. So that then tells us that hours are sticky. Okay. So the third observation is that the intensive margin has less variance than output. So that, that leads us to an implication, a standard economic implication, that the cyclical variation in total hours stems from changes in employment rather than hours. That was the, the view. What happened was in a business cycle, there was a productivity shock and firms increased their demand for labour. It would be reflected in N, more people being employed, than uh, H, those people being employed and offered longer hours of work. That's standard observation at this time. Um, now, if we want to understand labour productivity, how many widgets a unit of labour can produce, that's essentially what labour productivity is, um, that also that is a little bit stickier than output. So it moves with the cycle, up and down, but it doesn't move as much. So then we can't use labour productivity as our only explanation of changes in total hours. If it had the same variance, we might want to use it as our only explanation. Some, some other things going on other than productivity. That's kind of the way that economists would tend to think about things. See, we're boiling it down to really simple stuff here. We're very simple people. Now, real wages. We can look at real wages over the business cycle. And we can also observe that over the long run and over many advanced economies, that they're also more stable than output, which would add further a weight to the evidence that suggests that it's not labour productivity per se, and marginal products of labour should be equal to the real wage, that determines um, employment over the business cycle. Uh, and in fact, real wages are more stable than output and are in fact broadly acyclical which means that they don't tend to vary very much with the cycle one way or t'other, which is kind of perplexing uh, to some degree, but we'll return to this shortly. And the final thing we want to think about labour markets, if we want to divide the income in an economy to the people who own the factors of production, land, labour and capital, we might want to know how much of the income we produce goes to the owners of labour. That's us, I think, mostly, workers. Uh, and what we can see is that is generally about 60% of income in total goes to uh, workers or labour share of income. And we'll look at later on to see how much fluctuation there has been in that. There's been a large debate, as many of you will know, in the United States as to whether the labour share income has been falling in the United States because median wages have been falling. And has that increased inequality? For more on that, come to my next lecture where I shall discuss inequality in more detail. So we have these stylized facts. Let's carry them now into a, a story about the economy. Now, you remember some moments ago when I talked about uh, interwar employment. And this is the kind of model, uh, if it is a model, that we, we have in our head when we think about a neoclassical story of labour market clearing. Let me just spend a minute explaining uh, the diagram. It's terribly simple. Um, on the uh, horizontal axis, we have N, that's the number of people employed, which you can think of as N times H, so the total employment um, in the economy. Uh, and uh, on the vertical axis, we have the real wage. So that's W over P. Nominal wages over the price level is the real wage. Essentially, it tells you, I get paid so many pounds, but the real wage tells you how many widgets I can buy with those pounds in any one period. Or uh, g given that we're living in uh, 2016, um, how many uh, 
what, do, what do people buy these days off digital? I don't know. I don't buy anything. Digital, but anyway, uh, what, what, what I can buy digital? How many iPods I can buy, or whatever it might be uh, these days? But the, but the question is, um, the point is that on the vertical axis it's real wages, and on the horizontal axis it's employment. Draw attention first to the um, positive slope line in red, which I've just called the labour force. That's the total number of people of working age in the economy who may be prepared to work. And that could be a vertical line, but I've drawn it slightly upward sloping that suggests that as real wages rise, more people may decide to enter the labour force. Less people get discouraged. So as the real wage fell, people may get discouraged and remove themselves from the labour force, just do other things with their lives. Um, so just think of that as the overall level of people in the economy who may be available for work. But at any moment, there are two uh, schedules that determine the level of employment and the market-clearing level of real wages in this neoclassical framework. The first thing to look at is what I've called NS, and that's labour supply. And so the neoclassical story would simply say, look, I'm, if I'm a worker, I have two things I can do with my time. I can work or I can take leisure. And if the real wage rises, I'm more likely to substitute work for leisure. So on the margin, I'm going to be more likely to get out of bed in the morning on a Saturday and take another job if the real wage is high. It's just a, a statement about preferences. Nothing more than that. I've got some preferences between work and leisure. From the margin, I increase real wages. Wherever I was before, if I was at some equilibrium, if I increase real wages, I'm going to substitute some of my time to work rather than leisure. And I'm not for a moment arguing that the unemployed are seeking leisure. That would be uh, fallacious to make that statement. I'm simply talking about the labour supply schedule. Labour demand, economists call it a, a, a derived demand. So why, who demands labour? It's firms. Firms want to produce the maximum output they can to maximise profits, subject to some mix between capital and labour inputs. Now, for every extra bit of labour that they hire, we think probably the marginal product of that labour falls. So that if I'm moving or increasing the amount of labour that I have, in order to hire that marginal worker, I need to offer a lower real wage rate. And that's why the demand curve is downward sloping. So imagine I'm a firm, I've got a particular mix of capital and labour that gives me a certain level of productivity. I can measure the productivity of my marginal worker and I pay that marginal worker W over P asterisk. I know that if I hire one more worker, because I've got an optimal capital labour mix, extra worker is going to be slightly less productive than the previous worker because I've moved away from my optimal mix. Because it, he or she is slightly less productive, I'm only prepared to pay them a slightly lower real wage if they want the job. And that's why my demand schedule is downward sloping in this space. So this is all well and good and very simple. If we can get real wages to WP asterisk, we can clear the market, and yet there will still be you a level of what we might call search employment, but it used to be called voluntary unemployment. I don't particularly like the term voluntary and involuntary. But if we think of it as search unemployment, any particular moment in time, there'll be people between jobs or looking for jobs, and that's represented by the quantity U there. Um, and we can immediately note um, there's an equilibrium. A given level of um, labour in employment, N1, a given level of unemployment, U, that add together to give us the total labour force at that real wage rate. Now, I said to you some moments ago that real wages look acyclical over the business cycle. So what that means is that if output increases, real wages don't tend to increase with output relative to trend in the economy. 
And that's, at some level, a little bit hard to understand because you'd imagine that if uh, the process in the economy was driven by increases in demand, which if I can just point here, does this work? Does it, work? Does it just about work? There we go. If the process was in, determined by increases in demand, you'd go from this point here to this point here, which would mean that increases in N would be associated with increases in real wages. But I've just said to you that it looks like rate, wages are generally acyclical in the fact they don't tend to move that much up and down with the business cycle. And so you can see the only way we can make sense of that is that if N is increasing to N2 as we go into a boom, if real wages are going to be relatively stable, then we need to have demand and supply shocks in order to have that level of stability. So a firm demand shock could be an increase in productivity, an increase in firm profitability, an increase in aggregate demand in the economy. All of these things may lead to a shift out in the demand for labour. And the supply of labour, well, essentially two uh, explanations. One can be that people in general start to have a greater preference to enter the labour force. So there's a change in their preferences for work and leisure, and that could shift out the labour supply curve. Or alternatively, there could be an increase in the population driven by births or migration. And just a side point here, uh, many people will argue or you will hear many people argue that migration per se, because it increases the labour force, must reduce real wages, because we go from this point to this point here. Well, that's only true if the migrants, excuse me, <coughs> are substitutes for existing labourers in the economy. Excuse me, I'll just take it. If, on the other hand, the migrants are complements to the existing production processes, the same migration can lead to an, a shift out in the labour demand schedule. So it's not entirely clear which way it will go. You can imagine a world in which... So you might think of migrants as being strictly substitutes for existing labourers, then yes, that will lead to reduction in real wages. But if migrants add to the production processes by providing complementary supply of labour, that can lead to a shift out of the labour demand schedule and won't depress real wages. Very important point that... Um, our political leaders didn't allow us to debate properly, it seemed to me, prior to the referendum. Um, now, in the long run here, uh, I'm, I'm uh, showing two lines. This is UK data, 1871 to 1996. Um, the dark passages are recessions. You can see that they do come along, terrible things. The, um, the white uh, bands are uh, expansion periods. The dotted line is the business cycle. So... I can't quite see those numbers there, for which I apologise. This is minus 10%, this is plus 10%. So you've got some notion of business cycle fluctuations tend to be no more than 5% above or below the trend rate of growth. And the solid line are real wages. So I'm simply drawing to your attention, if we look at the very long run, real wages are acyclical, that implies that there are both demand and supply shocks, but there are certain periods where particular types of shocks seem to dominate. So I draw your attention, if I may... First to this period, which is the 1950s, where you can see that these are moving in opposite directions, suggesting preference shocks or labour supply shocks were very important in this period. And if we look at the period of the 1990s, we can see real wages and output moving together, suggesting that uh, productivity driving labour demand shocks were more important at that time. But over the very long run, both seem to matter, so we can't exclude one or the other. We're going to come back to that later on where we look um, what happens to the labour market after the Great Recession.
before um, continuing to discuss the minimum wage, I just want to make one point, if I may, about um, asymmetry and nominal wage rigidities. I haven't talked about rigidities today, but we may think that nominal contracts can't be moved immediately. They may take negotiation time. They may take time to learn. It may take time. It may be costly. Maybe we don't know what to do. So we tend to see both wages and prices not moving immediately following shocks. We've had a 15% fall in the exchange rate. You would expect all prices to have gone up by 15% already. They haven't because it takes time. It takes time for people to reprice. So we to imagine now, I've talked about positive shocks. What happens if there's a, um, a negative shock to labour demand? Say, let us suppose a negative shock to labour productivity. Well, we're going to go from N1. If wages and prices were flexible, we'd go from N1 to N4 in exactly the same way as we might if there was a positive shock. There'd be less employment, more unemployment, and the real wage would be lower. But let's imagine for a moment, in the short run, wages and prices are sticky and they can't move. So if the real wage remains the same at this point here, even though labour demand is lower, people are only going to want to demand at this schedule and that real wage N3 workers, not N4 workers. So by the real wage remaining sticky, an absence of adjustment in wages or prices means that there's more of adjustment in hours or employment. We go down to N3. And this leads to two types of unemployment, one of which we understand the search unemployment here that we had before remains. We get this other form of unemployment I've already talked about, notionally called in, in, uh, involuntary unemployment, but it simply says that this wage rate, this many people are prepared to work, but firms won't hire them because they're too expensive. Now, over time, you may expect real wages to be able to adjust as the unemployment rate drives down the bargaining position of wages, and if this is a low if it represents a low level of demand in the economy, this recession will also tend to drive down prices as demand is less than supply in the economy. And that process itself may then, over time, lead to an adjustment down here um, as uh, wages and prices fall and unemployment um, itself starts to, starts to fall. And in fact, we've talked about this short-run adjustment process in earlier lectures, and this was spotted by uh, A.W. Phillips with his famous Phillips curve in 1958, who also gave us some idea of how we might expect unemployment to operate in, in an economy. And this is a figure from his 1958 economic paper, uh, positing this negative relationship between um, rate of growth of wages and unemployment, suggesting that somewhere or other there's a capacity issue. So when capacity is very low in the economy, represented by low levels of unemployment, um, that puts more upward pressure on wages. And when there's high levels of unemployment, that puts downward pressure on wages. Just the process I've just described was picked up by Phillips there. For more on that curve, you can look at my second lecture in the 2014-15 period, um, Gresham lectures that I gave. Now, having gone through the labour markets, let me now turn to the two um, events or institutions that I described at the beginning of the lecture. The national minimum wage was introduced in 1999, and it turned out, uh, the evidence that I looked at um, about 10 years after its inception, uh, or sorry, 10 years ago, some seven or eight years after its inception, there was a whole raft of work um, undertaken by people connected with the Low Pay Commission 
in around 2006 and 7, and I refer very much to their work rather than mine. But I want to just set this up as something that surprised many neoclassical economists in terms of the impact that it had. Um, and it turned out that the introduction of the minimum wage helped the distribution of income rather than hindered it. In other words, it flattened some of the inequality in income. That's an equity question. And actually, rather than there being a trade-off between equity and efficiency, it seemed to increase efficiency because it offset existing labour market frictions, which I will um, show in a diagram to you in a minute. But if there's already a friction in place, it could be that by adding another friction, you can eliminate some efficiency problems in an economy. And that's, that's, that's one smart thing that the uh, minimum wage is able to do. It seemed to raise real and relative wages of uh, those people in and around the minimum wage with no clear significant effects on employment. And there's some dynamic stories that are difficult to pick up in the static analysis, but we might want to have them at the back of our mind. Labour on the minimum wage may have been able to use these jobs as a stepping stone to labour market entry in general. Having secured one type of job, it was maybe easier to secure another type of job in the future. Um, and, and that by having a minimum wage, it attracted people to take those jobs which they may otherwise not have taken. That's a clear, dynamic, positive benefit from this. Um, and th another argument is that firms might, might have intensified their effort by offsetting the friction that I'll discuss in a minute. It may have forced them to alter their work organisation and raise human capital investment. I don't think we've seen enough of human capital investment by firms in the UK, and that's something we'll return to in future lectures. So the neoclassical view was that, uh, it's given by the standard chart here, is that if we have a market clearing wage of WP asterisk and N1, and we raise it above the, near, the market clearing wage in, in the same way as I described the period 1929 to 1932, that's going to mean that people have essentially priced themselves out of jobs, to use a horrible phrase. The real wage is now above the market clearing level. Um, more people looking for work than firms are willing to hire. They're only willing to hire N min at that minimum wage. And so we get second type of unemployment re-emerging. And that was one set of essentially arguments against having a minimum wage. You're going to raise it above the market clearing level and you're going to create unemployment and lower the number of people employed. So this was a prediction. Someone said, this is what's going to happen. Let me just see if this can... Uh, I don't think that went on, did it? Let's try again. But that neoclassical view doesn't deal very well with the, the, the actual existence of labour market frictions. So let's examine the same uh, policy when we allow for labour market frictions. So now we've got the same diagram in all but essence, but there are two things I'm going to change. I'm going to say, look, actually, the, if this is, the, this is the cost of hiring someone, is their real wage. But if the actual cost of hiring them is somewhere above that, because they're, they maybe I have to pay everyone in the firm a change in the real wage, or there are extra costs associated with hiring a particular individual, the marginal cost of that hire might well be up here rather than at that real wage there. So that is the thing that matters to the firm, is the actual cost to them of hiring. And if that's the actual cost, they're going to want to ensure that they buy at that point rather than that point there. And the second thing is they can only do that to a particular firm if it's one buyer amongst many sellers, what economists call a monopsony. 
So if a particular firm has some market power and you want to work for it, or you live in a town where it's the biggest employer, or you have to work there because there's nothing else available to you, that firm has some buying power and it can pay you below its marginal cost of hiring you and its marginal cost of hiring you is above your real wage. So you get this kind of equilibrium in this stage. You receive this real wage. These costs, VF minus WP, double asterisks, are the extra costs the firm has to pay by taking you on. But it can discriminate in this way because it has power over you in the sense in which you have to work for that firm. And if you don't work for that firm, there's someone else who may be able to. In that world, therefore, um, you receive WP asterisks. The firm has the costs of VF and it hires up to this point here. And there, we're going to see this level of search unemployment in this equilibrium. This is just the introduction of a simple labour market friction. And now we're going to see um, what happens if this clicks on in the right way. Now, if I set a minimum wage, which is above the previous market clearing wage when there is uh, the set of frictions I've just described, we can set it above the previous market clearing wage, and yet the firm is going to face this level of cost attached to it, but will be hiring uh, up to this point here. And therefore, what we're going to see is an increase in employment and an increase in real wages. Because um, the firm is um, almost forced to offset the friction and higher up to this point here. So the unemployment rate might actually fall, the employment rate might rise, and the real wage will also rise in this setup. So let's see what happened. This um, table is from uh, Metcalf, 2006. It takes the household income into deciles from 1 up to 10, and it looks at the households who gained from the increase in the minimum wage up to 2003. And you can see there's a, across the board there's a percentage gain in all households, and it's concentrated in the lower deciles rather than anywhere else, and even more so where there's a working age household with at least one member in employment. You can see there, very significant fractions of working-age households benefited around the time the minimum wage was introduced. So uh, certainly an increase in household income associated with the introduction of the minimum wage, not a reduction in employment or an increase in unemployment. This is slightly more complicated, but I'll just explain what's going on here as simple as I can. We're looking at the employment change rather than the unemployment change in the first six or so years of the introduction of the minimum wage, which was introduced first at £3.50 uh, at this time. And we're looking at the impact on uh, percentage of the firms um, earning 25% or more of the, of the workforce are on the minimum wage. The, the ones that closed down were 21%, exactly the same as the fraction of firms who failed who had no firms, no employees on the minimum wage. 
So there's no difference in firm closure, whether firms had large numbers of people on the minimum wage or small numbers of people on the minimum wage. It didn't have an impact at the firm level. It didn't, didn't lead to a, an increase in the failure rate of firms that were paying the minimum wage as opposed to those who were not. And similarly, we can't see any significant differences between the increase or reduction in employment by firms that have no workers at the minimum wage or many workers at the minimum wage. They're very, very similar numbers across the board. So whether you had a large fraction of your workforce to whom you suddenly had to pay a higher real wage according to the minimum or, or not didn't lead to either a, a large increase in failures or large differences in employment. Very, very clear. Suggestive by sort of inference that there were very, very uh, important labour market frictions that the minimum wage, wage was able to exploit. So what we actually observed with the introduction of the minimum wage is that the relative price of minimum wage produced consumer services rose relative to the RPI. So yes, they became a bit more costly because firms took on more workers at higher wages. Um, but this helped the income distribution, as I talked about some moments ago. Uh, profits in firms employing low-wage workers fell, did fall, relative to other firms. The overall share of profit in national income has been lower, arguably, as a result. So labour income has risen somewhat. Um, and at this time, firms tend to adjust hours rather than workers as a result. So this had an impact on firm choice between the number of people that they employed and the hours that they employed them. But the overall set of results are suggestive of the existence of important labour market frictions where there's either imperfect information, mobility costs or changes in tastes that all give the employer some power which we can exploit with the imposition of minimum wage. I want to go on now to the recession. In fact, I'm sure we all want to leave the recession behind us. But, uh, do that as soon as we can. So you remember from uh, my previous lecture talking about the recession, this was a chart illustrating the, the size of the surprise um, of the recession. So this, this was the average forecast made uh, in late 2007 of what we thought growth would be um, at, this, at that time, and this is what actually happened. So, uh, okay, forecast has got it wrong. Not the last time, not the first time. But I was telling you something of the size of the recession shock at that time. Uh, this is year-on-year year growth, so if we, take the, if we take the integral of this, we'll get some idea of the shortfall in the level of output relative to where we might have expected it to be over time. It's a large number. Um, and indeed, the puzzle is the following. Um, what, I look, I'll ask you to look at the, the right-hand side first, um, and that's the bullet points. That Oaken's law... I put law in inverted commas, often used by economists, as some, suggests some stable relationship between unemployment and the output gap. So if there's a recession, economists will say, well, I think unemployment will increase. And I think there may be a stable relationship between them. Um, and if there is a stable relationship, what you can then say is, if I don't know the output gap, it's very hard to measure, but it's been a stable relationship in the past because I can measure the increase in unemployment, despite what Orwell might have said, I might be able to use that to work out what the change in the output gap is. So I can't measure the output gap, but I know there's a relationship between unemployment and the output gap. So if I can measure unemployment, I know what the output gap is. That's the kind of story that was used. Um, so if we uh, look at the overall 
level increase in unemployment. Look at the size of the shock that I've shown you. The average increase in unemployment in the UK was about 3%, from around 5 to 8% in its recession. If we use that, sort of the sort of one in two rule, which is, this is implying, we're going from a positive output gap of, say, 1% to 2%, that's when the level of production is above capacity, to a negative output gap of around 4%, that's when the level of production is below capacity, that's around a 6% change in uh, output relative to the uh, capacity in the economy. And if there's a, a one-in-two rule, that would, suggest, that would be consistent with a 3% increase in unemployment. So the 6% fall in output um, is consist would be inferred from the 3% increase in unemployment. But the problem was the following. Most people thought that the increase or, or, or the increase in the output gap, so the change from overcapacity to undercapacity, the creation of spare capacity in the economy, was significantly more than 6%, 12% or 15%. And that led to a puzzle. And yet, unemployment only rose by 3%. If the output gap, which was very large, was 15%, we should have expected unemployment to have risen by 6 or 7%. So from 5% to double figures at least, which didn't happen. So does that tell us that the Oaken law is wrong or the output gap is mismeasured? Or does it tell us something about the labour market being very flexible? And in fact, the answer is the last one. Given the size of the shock to output, we actually should have expected unemployment to have increased by more like 6% than 3%. And what we'll see in a minute is the flexible nature of the, unemployment uh, of the labour market surprised us. Um, so what was one aspect of um, the flexibility? Well, one aspect was uh, productivity and real wages. Uh, this is real output per hour, standard measure of productivity. We've indexed it at one since the start of the recession. This is a, a chart from Blundell et al. 2014. Um, and you can see in previous recessions, 1990, 1979, which we studied in the previous lecture, um, productivity increased fairly rapidly after the uh, start of the recession. In this particular period, 20 quarters gets you five years, um, there's been very little change, if anything, a fall in productivity over this period, which is the dominant determinate, de determinant of stable or lower real wages for people. There's a direct mapping between productivity and real wages. We've seen there's been no recovery in productivity. And in fact, the Chancellor alluded to this strongly in yesterday's lecture. So the first thing to take away, productivity hasn't increased, despite a recovery of sorts in output, and real wages alongside that have stagnated in this upturn. So we've got a real wage stability. Next thing, before I get too happy about unemployment, and I, one can never be happy about unemployment for all the reasons I gave at the beginning of the lecture, we take the average unemployment of 16 to 64 or 25 to 49, this is the point I was making. If we think the natural rate of unemployment is around 5% and we start this chart from the recession 2007-8 you can see that the overall unemployment in the workforce did not breach 10% and it went up by about 3 percentage points and came back down very quickly. But before going on I'm going to talk about the aggregate but please bear in mind these numbers mask considerable problems for the young 
in terms of the level of unemployment we saw going up to 15% at the turn of this decade and 30 to 35% for 16 to 17 year olds. Yes, it's come down markedly, but I don't think 20% or over 10% is a great success story for the young. So I'd say that on the side. But with that said, what I want to draw your attention to is the size of the shock, according to some notion of the relationship between the output gap and employment, should have led to a, a much higher level of unemployment. It didn't. And the real wages are part of the story. Let me point to a couple of other points. This red line is the percentage of working age employment, and you can think of that as that labour force line that I had in all the diagrams, and that's been reasonably stable. Some, some discouraged workers at the time of the recession, so some fall closer to 60% as people moved out of the labour market, but some evidence of return back to the labour market. So you can think of that as shifts in the LF curve that I put out some moments ago. And since the inception of the um, minimum wage, we can see at least a stabilisation in the labour share of income. There's been a fall in the labour share of income since the late 1970s from just under 70% to about 60%. But we can see there's been a recovery around the time the minimum wage was introduced and it looks reasonably stable now in the mid-60s, which is, broadly speaking, at its long-term average. So I pointed to productivity and I made the link that, that should tell us something about real wages. And indeed, however you measure real wages, this, this is male wages deflated by the consumer expenditure deflator or the consumer price index, or all wages rather than just male wages deflated by the same way. So however you measure it, this, this secular increase in real wages along with productivity abruptly stopped at the time of the recession alongside the abrupt um, discontinuity in productivity over that period. So real wages have not recovered um, after the recession, even if employment and output has. So it's a concern um, for us, I think. Um, and you can see, as after the recession in 2008, is that hours, the intensive margin fell in the first instance as people took, um, well, worked fewer hours, but there's been a recovery, but we're only just slightly beyond uh, the point we were in 2008. So there has been some recovery in hours. But I want to point here is that there has been more variation in hours than we'd seen in the past. I said earlier on that hours typically didn't move that much over the business cycle. We've seen here two forms of flexibility that have helped us understand the downward surprise to unemployment. We expected it to double. It only went up by 3%. One of the reasons is that real wages have fallen. The other reason is that hours have been more flexible than normal. So in a sense, one can imagine, compared to what we might have expected, people having lower real wages and working fewer hours than we might have anticipated has been part of the reason why unemployment has surprised on the downside. And we can see some distributive effects here is if we look at um, the employment rate, uh, the unemployment rate, the employment rate, the unemployment rate and the workforce uh, change for different age groups. The black bar is 16 to 24, 
the grey middle grey bar is 24 to 49, and the dark bar at the end is 50 plus. And you can see the employment rate fell markedly, as the previous chart would suggest, for the very young. Um, it increased for the people in the middle uh, bracket of 24 to 59 and fell for the very old. Um, and the other point to raise is that the workforce, large increase of people 50 plus entering the workforce over this period immediately after the recession. So people responded um, perhaps to pension shortfalls or the longevity by moving back into the workforce in this period in quite a profound way, uh, possibly responding to low interest rates and returns on their savings. I, I don't know the answer, but I'm saying there's a number of reasons there that might help us understand that. Um, and so overall, this kind of relationship between output and unemployment can be plotted for a large number of countries. There seems to be some relationship that when GDP increases, employment falls. When GDP falls, unemployment increases. But in the UK, over the period 2007 to 2013, been very little aggregate change in output. We got back to where we'd started after the recession by 2013. There'd also been very little change in unemployment by that time. So in terms of unemployment alone and GDP, six years after the recession, we were back to where we started. But what was different is that real wages were lower and hours had changed. That's the compositional effect of what we'd seen. And so we end, nearly, with beverage. Because I think if we accept that there are flexibilities and frictions in the labour market, what we have to have in our mind if we're going to understand labour markets is a beverage curve, <laughs> something that relates the tightness of the labour market, that's the vacancy rate, to the level of unemployment. It's a, it's a standard way now of thinking about search employment. If in aggregate firms are posting a vacancy rate of 2%, that would lead, if this was a stable relationship, to an unemployment rate of around 5%, which we think is something like an equilibrium level of unemployment. It means we're approximately over the life of our lifetimes, spending about 5% of the years that we might be working, looking for work. That's, that's where the 5% number comes from. It says that if firms reduce their vacancy rate, that means those numbers of people who are looking for a job are less likely to find a match. There's just fewer jobs for them to find. To find a job, you have to find a match, you have to search, you have to pay the costs of getting there, trying to persuade someone to take you on. If there are fewer vacancies, they're less likely to find a match. That flow of people who are not finding a match will then find themselves into the pool of unemployed, and that will then lead to a higher level of unemployment. So you've got this traced relationship between the search for a job, both by firms and by people looking for a job, as pinned down as a relationship between the level of vacancies in the economy and the unemployment rate. And of course, if you have an economy that is relatively uh, efficient or flexible, you might think this would be a relatively steep curve. Large changes in the vacancy rate don't have large implications for unemployment. But an economy that is structurally problematic, small changes in the vacancy rate may lead to large changes in unemployment. So it's a good way of describing some of the frictions that I've been talking about. And the question is whether you, you can design labour market institutions to make this search process more efficient. But what you can see is that from the start of the recession, or about the time it started, 2008, 
you've got a vacancy rate of around 2%, unemployment of just over 5%, and you move down this curve as vacancies posted start to fall, and unemployment rises to a peak of just under 8.5%. And then at this time, from 2011 onwards, you have policies introduced uh, by the government, possibly um, associated with fiscal consolidation, but also weakness of demand with our European trading partners that led to a shift out in this curve that meant that a given level of vacancies implied a higher level of unemployment than it did prior to this shift out. But all in all, the fact that this fall in vacancies only led to an increase in 3% is the surprise. And that reflects the flexibility that we've observed in the UK labour market. So in summary, despite the fact I started with simple uh, labour market models, I want to try and persuade you that they're a good starting point, but essentially they're flawed. They don't tell you the whole story. But that's okay. Um, the macroeconomic picture can't do particularly well at explaining the split between hours, employment and unemployment. We need to put some frictions in there about search. Um, and that's what the minimum wage experience confirms to us, that search, that labour market frictions matter. And the post-recession fall in real wages can collectively tell us that there's been both an increase in supply of workers as people participate more in the labour market, but also a fall in the capital output ratio or the capital labour ratios. Firms have hoarded labour, their marginal product have fallen, and they've been able to pay them real, lower real wages as a result. The only way you're going to increase productivity is for firms to increase the level of capital by investing and putting back um, old levels of capital to labour or capital to output ratios. And that's something that might have to wait for the financial crisis to finish, in a sense. Because firms, if they're going to invest, they're going to have to plan a long run, uh, think about the levels of confidence in the economy and the returns they're going to get from those capital investments that they're not currently making. So we should turn to productivity um, next year in my lectures. But thank you very much for coming along today. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.